regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Listening to another episode of Datacast. Uh, my name is James Lee, and today I'm on the live with uh, Dr. Jonathan Leslie. He obtained his PhD in biology from the University of London, studying blood vessel information at the Cancer Research UK of London Research Institute. And uh, after 20 years researching the molecular processes underlying cancer, he turned to data science and founded a freelance consultancy business. He is very passionate about promoting open source software and routinely volunteers as a mentor in the R programming and data science community. So uh, welcome to the show, uh, John. Hi, thank you for having me. Awesome. Let's go back to the early days with your education. So can you tell uh, the audience uh, why are you interested in studying biology in, in college and uh, eventually pursuing a PhD in this field? Yeah, um, I, I was interested in science. I had thought about several different areas of science, um, of natural sciences and engineering, and uh, I just sort of enjoyed biology the most. It, it had a, a nice combination of not being overly analytical, uh, but still scientific, and, and um, there, there's sort of a... I don't want to say a softness, but there's there's a qualitative aspect to biology compared to other sciences that was appealing to me, and I just thought it was interesting. I, I like thinking about biological problems, um, and the thing that interested me interested me the most as I went on in my career was understanding how how, how cells communicate with one another. So if you think of of your body as this collection of, of trillions and trillions of cells, those cells are always talking to each other, and and there's, there are rules and there are processes that govern the whole community of cells that make up your body that end up that, that, that result in you being you. So, for example, if you're an embryo and you're developing and eventually you form two arms, well, those arms are more or less the same size and the same shape. And my arm is different than your arm. And, and so somehow the cells on the right side of my body are talking to the cells on the left and and there's a coordination there. I just found that very elegant, very interesting how that process happens and the fact that it happens at all is is, is somewhat miraculous that you can start with a single cell and turn it into a person. Uh, that, that was really fascinating to me. So that really piqued my interest and that's why I, I chose what I did for, for my PhD. Um, I was studying a Cancer Research UK, and we were studying embryology, but in the context of blood vessel formation, and using that as a way to understand how blood vessels normally form, and then to help us understand what goes wrong when blood vessels form poorly in a cancerous state, for example, when a tumor develops. Does that answer your question? Research fellowship at uh, Cancer Research UK, right? So mm -hmm. yes. I see that you were doing your PhD in anatomy and uh, developmental biology, right? That's right. So after finishing your PhD, you uh, accepted a postdoc uh, research uh, associate role with King's College London, right? And so, That's um, right. can you go over uh, the work that uh, that you have uh, accomplished during your time there? So that was another lab that was working in developmental biology and. What I mean by that is, is sort of analogous to same as embryology. So looking at how you go from a single cell to a complex multicellular organism, um, that was what really interested me. So this was uh, working on the development of skeletal muscle. And we were using a model organism called a zebrafish. And a nice thing about a zebrafish is that 
within 24 hours after fertilization. It's got a, a functioning circulatory system. It's got muscles that can twitch. It develops very quickly, and it's also optically transparent. So you can take an embryo and you can immobilize it under a microscope, and you can watch these things happen uh, in real time often. And so this this role was looking at how skeletal muscle forms. And if you if you take a skeletal muscle fiber apart, there's this very complex, highly structured, highly ordered array of proteins. And it's, it's, it's a really, it's a, it's a vast collection of proteins that form the structure that is the contractile unit. And so when your muscles twitch, this, this network of proteins walks across itself. And that's how you get a shortening of a muscle fiber. And so we were trying to understand how you build that, how you go from a, a cell, a nascent muscle fiber, where this contractile apparatus is not formed and how you build this thing that's so complicated and the analogy we often use was thinking about building a skyscraper if you if you if you look at a skyscraper and just try to pick it apart like a biologist would pick apart a muscle cell you see it's incredibly vast there's wires there's girders there's plumbing there's air conditioning there's all these parts that make it function and we were trying to understand how you put that together from from something that has none of those parts and and doing that was my first entry into using large data sets and, and getting into things that were approaching data science. What are some of the major applications of your, of your research work there with, with human anatomy and, and skeleton muscle? We worked a lot of muscular dystrophy uh, in our lab, trying to understand why people who suffer from muscular dystrophy lose muscle tone and lose muscle mass and, and and to try to see if we could somehow overcome that by stimulating the production of certain genes so that was i think something that was that was very that had applications in human biology but we were also just interested in in, in this interesting scientific question which is you know how do you build this incredibly complex structure and 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 all those instructions are contained within a fiber itself, it knows how to do it, and how does it sort sort that out, both in space but also in time? How does it know when to turn on which genes, and when to build different parts, and how does that carry on throughout adult life? If if you start exercising a lot and hitting the gym, your muscle fibers get bigger and they they grow more of these fibers, and that has to be done in a coordinated way as well. And, and it's just a, a very interesting scientific problem. And uh, so after four years with uh, King's College, you moved into another postdoc position, this time with uh, UCL, right? And so uh, how has your research work sort of evolved? Right. So that was a lab also studying embryology or developmental biology. Uh, we're looking again at, at how you go from a small, a small unicellular or multicellular embryo to a more complex uh, embryo with different structures and eventually into an adult. Uh, this was a slightly different question. We were looking at, at tissue induction rather than than how structures form. And what that means is, is as an embryo is growing, initially all the tissues, all the cells are the same. And then at some point, some of those bits of cells become different from others. So, so there'll be instructions that say that this collection of cells, you're going to go on and become part of the nervous system and this other bit you're going to become muscle cell and, and so we're looking at the processes that control that initial switch how you take a population of cells that are all the same and make some of them different and how you can do that over distances this the signals that control that are created quite large distances away from the target cells um, which means that the signal has to operate over large a large range um, I mean, this is large in embryonic sense, which is from the tail of the embryo to the head. But but still, it's, it's not something that's happening in direct with, with cells in direct contact. And so we were trying to understand how these signals pass through the embryo and then have their effect, and then what those what those effects are in terms of tissue patterning in as the embryo develops. In your opinion, uh, what are some of the unique characteristics of um, uh, biological data set? You know, the data in, in the biological domain. Well, I, I feel like often biological data is, is noisier or more variable, and that's often a challenge. Um, if you compare it to 
to these some areas of physics, for example, or probably chemistry, or the more more hard natural sciences, there's a lot of noise, and there's just a lot of inherent variability that's harder to control for. And I think that's a big challenge, uh, especially if you're trying to to do a statistical analysis on the results of an experiment. You want to see, okay, well, you know, is this effect real or, or significant? And I think that can often be more difficult, although having said that, I've never done physics research, so <laughs> a physicist may argue the same thing in their favor. So after you finish uh, your postdoc research with UCL, um, in the next phase of your career, you started getting into doing freelance data science. So I'm just curious, uh, what what is the mo motivation behind this uh, career transition? That was a hard that was a hard choice for me to make. Uh, I had been doing research for about 22 or 23 years at, at a handful of different universities, and it was pretty much all I knew. And so I decided that I, I didn't want to do that anymore. And, and I guess the motivation came from several different directions. One was that I was, I was bored. I, I was not really enjoying doing basic research anymore. I was bored with doing experiments. I was bored with, with struggling to try to gather enough information to make meaningful discoveries and meaningful conclusions. And, and I, I was just, I was sick of it. I've been doing the same thing for a long time and it wasn't really exciting for me anymore. And I think when that happens, that's a, a big a big red flag that maybe it's time to think about something different. So that was part of it. I also thought about where I was in my career, my life. I was, I just finished my second postdoc. I was in my forties and I looked at the future that was ahead of me. If I were to stay in an academic path and it wasn't really a future I wanted. Uh, I didn't want to become a group leader and run my own lab. I'm not, I wouldn't have been able to anyway. I didn't have the CV for it, but even if I had wanted to do that, it didn't appeal to me. I had friends who had that life, and that life just didn't appeal to me at all. Uh, I had been a scientific officer, so you know, a, a, a lab manager or a lab technician earlier before my PhD, and I really loved that kind of work. That was fantastic, but it's hard to get those kind of jobs now. Those The, the funding's not really there for many of those roles, and that didn't really account for the boredom issue. So... There were a number of reasons that made me think, okay, this is it's time to switch gears. So once I made that decision, then the question was, well, what do I go to? If I, if I realize basic research isn't the right thing for me, what is the right thing? And so I did a bit of soul searching, and I tried to, I tried to figure out what, it, where was I happiest? What was I happiest doing when I was at work? And the answer for me was that I was happiest after I'd finished an experiment, I collected my data, and I sat down at my computer, and I literally typed in numbers from my notepad into an Excel sheet and started analyzing it, started plotting it, and tried to extract insight and, and, and results and conclusions from the information I just gathered. And when I did that, I, I watched, I, I would get completely caught up in what I was doing, Hours would roll by, and I didn't notice it. And I realized, hey, this is actually fun. This is, you know, a, a little bit of fun in an otherwise uh, not fun <laughs> week for me. And so that gave an indication that okay, it, it wasn't really that 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 gathering the data wasn't really it for me. But but analyzing the data, the data was, um, and that was mixed with conversations I had with friends of mine who were in other fields, for example, epidemiology, where they had large data sets that were provided by, let's say, health organizations like the WHO. And their research was to analyze that data, not to collect it, but just to analyze it. And, and that really appealed to me, that, that it was the analysis that, that got me excited, not the experimentation, which I think is unusual for scientists. A lot of scientists say they love the experiments that they don't like other parts of the job. But for me, it was, it was the analysis that I really enjoyed. And so... Data science kind of checked a lot of those boxes. It was a chance to, to do analysis. It was a chance to extract insights. It was also a chance to learn something new, which was programming. I wasn't much of a computer programmer, and I was keen to learn new things because I was bored. So it, a lot of aspects of it just made sense. So what could be your advice for, uh, let's say, PhD student and even uh, postdoc researchers who want to transition from academia to into the industry? I would say don't let inertia 
keep you from investigating it. What I mean by that is that it, it can be easy to sort of think about, oh, maybe I want to do this career move, but not actually get started, get the ball rolling in, in studies and, and research and, and researching what you have to do to make it happen. And a lot of times that becomes prohibitive. So the enormity of a transition just almost paralyzes you, let's say, for lack of a better term. Um, and so I guess one bit of advice I say is just get in it. Just just find something that you think might be interesting and start learning about it, whether it's an online course or reading a book that is has something to do with data science. Just just get your get your hands dirty. Um, start coding, learning how R or Python or whatever other language you want to learn works. And and just see if it if it's something that you're interested in. Um, and then you know, if it is, then you can carry on and you can start start doing more. Uh, you were doing some freelancing projects, right? So, uh, can you tell me uh, what was some of the most interesting freelance projects that you work on during those times? I'm trying to think. I, I, had a, I had sort of two roles. I, I had a hands-on freelancing work where I did my own projects, and then I had um, almost like project management or lead data science roles where I, I did more management on the projects instead of hands-on work. And they're interesting ones for both. Um, one that I found really fascinating was where I wasn't actually doing the hands-on work. I was more leading the project. And that was to build a recommender system for a, a newly developed app that was aimed at women who were susceptible to type 2 diabetes. Um, so if you if you are pregnant and you have gestational diabetes, that then makes you more prone to get type two diabetes after the child is born. And so this project was aimed at trying to help women in that situation build meal plans for a week that that made sense in terms of doctor's orders and nutritionists' advice um, to manage their diabetes or their risk of diabetes, and then to go on and, and make have this interface with online grocery orders so that you could actually log on to your app, pick a few meals that you think you want for the week that were made sense in terms of your nutritional recommendations and then have it delivered to your door. And to me, that was a really a, a nice use of data science. It, it, it was a product that had um, real value to, to people. It wasn't just helping someone make more money, but it was also bringing value to people who needed it. And it was an interesting scientific problem interesting to think about how do you approach this and we used something called a recommender system for it and uh, it had a lot of moving parts that had to work in order for, for the app to do its thing and what we produced was just a, a prototype but it was a really fascinating project and one I really was very proud of the team that did the work on it and for what, what came of it. That's very fascinating. So actually um, one of my current freelance projects is to build a video recommendation system essentially try to um, given like a large video database can uh, be a system that can recommend video that are similar in terms of um, visual and, and even linguistic features so um, I'm spending a lot of time in the past couple of months just kind of read, read up on tutorials and, and, and blogs and, and, and even books about you know a, a different variety of techniques to implement a recommendation system uh, yeah, so, so maybe uh, you can dig a little bit deeper on that. What are some sort of, I guess, uh, algorithms or, or techniques that uh, go inside, you know, uh, the recommendation system that, that you and your team uh, were building? What do you mean for that project? Yeah, well, for that project and, uh, and specifically and maybe later on if you got a chance to explore something more. Mm. Uh, well, we did a number of different recommender system projects over the years. Uh, so, so that one was more of a content-based approach. Uh, we also had collaborative filtering approaches for different projects. Um, so, uh, for example, we made a project where we recommended uh, if you go to a scientific conference and, and you have uh, vendors there, we, we helped the vendors find those attendees that maybe were the best fit based on, on their sort of idealized, quote-unquote idealized, um, target. And, and that was also an interesting problem, but with a slightly different logic. Um, so we did a lot of different, well, a number of different approaches to recommender systems. 
Does that answer your question? I'm not sure if I've answered it or just sort of walked around it. No, yeah, totally. Yeah, I understand, you know, content base and collaborative filtering and uh, matrix factorization, some of those uh, mm -hmm. are, are very uh, classic approach to to uh, to uh, building recommendation system. And recently, I, I suppose with some of the advancement in neural networks and, and deep learning, we can um, even use that to, to apply uh, for, for, for recommended system to scale, scale even for more high dimensional and, and, and large data set, right? Yeah, that, that goes beyond my area of expertise with recommended systems, I have to say. Um, but I, I'm sure there's a lot of cutting edge research out there and new technologies and techniques um, that are really pushing the edge of what you can do with them. Um, I think they're a really interesting part of data science and, and uh, they're fun to work with. I really enjoy them. Absolutely. And so uh, after freelancing for a while, you uh, started a, a data science consulting business. And, uh, you know, what would be your advice for, let's say, freelancers who, who are very used to doing independent projects to become a consultant? Basically, how, how can they scale their skills, you know, to, to, to you know, get more work and, you know, get, get attracted to more clients, yeah. Yeah, I was very lucky because one of my one of my clients was the company I work for now called Pivigo, and the role I did with them was mentoring at their at their data science boot camp. So it's a program we're running right now, actually called Science to Data Science, and it's geared towards people who have advanced degrees, either PhDs usually or postdoc level candidates in the natural sciences who want to do exactly what I did. They want to transition to data science and we put them on projects for a few weeks and they work on a business case and these are real business cases with real companies. And by mentoring, I ended up being a part of a lot of conversations between data scientists and the companies. And often I would be the person who was sort of mediating those conversations or the go-between between the team and the company. And, and so, so I had this sort of unique opportunity to have a lot of client-facing time. And that became a big part of my job was doing client-facing work and and having to communicate these complex processes and algorithms to people who weren't always specialists in that field and to do the converse as well, to be able to talk to a stakeholder from a company who had a, an interest in a data science project but weren't technical in their own right and, and try to understand what we could do and what brought value to them. And so for me then, coming off of that experience, I was well poised to be a, to, to take on a consult, consultation role um, where I would do a lot of that kind of work. Where I'd go and, and meet clients who were thinking about data science but hadn't done a data science project before. They weren't scientists at all. They weren't maybe even computer programmers. And try to work with them to identify how data science might help their business and how it would bring value to them and, and, and what a reasonable data science project might look like, um, given the constraints of, of their data and their budget and things like that. Um, so <laughs> my advice, I guess, is to do that, but that, that's a very hard thing to do. I was very lucky that I had that opportunity, and I think a lot of people wouldn't have that. I, I suppose then, if, if you didn't have that opportunity to be facing clients as much, to try to recreate that in other ways. So, for example, going to, to meetups. Um, our company hosts a meetup that's basically data science in business, and, and it's it's more business partners that come to the meetup than it is data scientists. And I'm sure there are other ones like that around other cities around the world. Uh, things like that are, are maybe not, they may not be quite as appealing on the surface to a data scientist. You may want to go learn about neural networks or something like that instead. But it can be really valuable to give you an experience of, of talking to people who aren't necessarily data scientists and thinking about business problems rather than data science problems. But I'm not sure if that, if that answers your question or not. I, I suppose, you know, from, from a skill development uh, kind of uh, perspective, like previously you were doing a lot of research work in university and, and postdoc and doing freelance, right? And so you probably, you know, spend a lot of time doing like analysis and, 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 and even prediction and then suddenly you you getting into a client facing role doing consultations so you have to up a notch in terms of 
how do you communicate results how do you get familiar with, with business uh, uh, opportunities and you know doing sort of I guess you know storytelling how, how does your sort of mental process was like how, how did you um, take the time to to move from 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 that kind of uh, research work into more like 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 like, uh, like I just mentioned you know more like storytelling I, I guess the best answer is that I, I view it as as storytelling the, the same kind of storytelling you would do if you were giving a scientific talk or writing a scientific paper and I think that's a big part of of how I at least approach approach these conversations is I try to take a business problem and and frame it in a scientific way so think of it as a, a testable hypothesis or or almost the way you, you would drive a research grant like if you're applying for a research grant from a major funding body you say okay we're trying to learn these big concepts and we're going to break it down into these steps and it's it's very much the same approach when trying to frame a business problem in terms of data science at least for me it is uh, and, and I think that often resonates with the person sitting across the table with me that, that I'm bringing in scientific expertise but I'm going to use that to 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 spin a narrative that helps to address things that are important to them and valuable and relevant and interesting to them. So now let's talk about Pivotal, you know, the, the company that you're working on. Uh, you you the head of data science there. So uh, can you share some uh, background information about the company and as well as some of the high-level description of your work there? Yeah. So Pivotal was formed five years ago. We had our fifth birthday yesterday, I think. It was uh, founded by two co-founders. So Kim Nilsson is our CEO. She was an astrophysicist. And Jason Muller is our COO. And he has a background in recruiting. And they met at business school. Kim had gone through sort of a similar catharsis as me. She was she didn't want to stay in, in basic science. She wanted to explore something different, so she went on, she went to do a, a master's, uh, an MBA degree, and she met Jason, and they thought, well, there are a lot of people who are going through this, and data science is becoming a very popular field. She could combine her experience with, with academic research and his experience with recruiting and put together this boot camp, Science to Data Science, that would really help people to make that transition, and, and what she experienced and I experienced as well is that it's, it's very hard there are certain aspects of that transition that are very difficult to overcome. So, for example, having uh, being able to demonstrate uh, business savvy. You might be a brilliant scientist, but can you talk in the business context and can you think about business problems? And it's very hard to make to prove that if all you know is 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 basic research. Um, or can you work on a team? A lot of time, that's not part of your academic research because you're sitting over a microscope all day and writing your papers sort of in isolation. But teamwork is a big part of, of being an effective member of a data science team. And it's, it's very tough for people who are very smart, very clever in an academic setting to, to recreate those things in their experience and on their CV. And so they thought this is a great opportunity. We can give them this program. We can put them we can let them work on real business cases with real business partners. They'll come away with the skills they need to be effective data scientists and with this experience to show for themselves, to show that they can they can actually do it. And it's, it's been hugely successful. Um, it's, it's been a, a, I would have loved to take part myself. Uh, it didn't work out for me because the timing wasn't right with my career. Um, but it, it, it makes so much sense for somebody in my situation. So, so that's how the company got started. And, and they were doing these boot camps, so we called S2DS, Science to Data Science. They were doing them once a year for the first two or three years. And then they added to that and they added what are called the virtual program. So the, the one they were doing was based in London. That's where we are in London, UK. Then they added two virtual programs a year, where it's the exact same format, the same time, but everyone works from home and they do it through Skype and Google Hangouts. Um, and they have lectures still, and they work in teams still, and they work on business cases still. But it's all from, from uh, it's all working remotely. So 
we grew to include that, and now we're we're expanding more, and we're, we're developing something called uh, marketplace. And this is sort of similar, where we have projects that that business partners bring to the company, but now these are larger scope projects, so bigger scale in terms of, of what we're trying to accomplish, in terms of budget, and in terms of expertise that is required for the project to succeed. And, and part of the reason why this is an attractive next step for us is because we have this huge network of data scientists that we've trained, that we know are good, that we know they're smart, and they're looking for jobs, and a lot of them are looking to be freelancers. And so we, we have this marketplace that's available that, that lets them get working as freelancers on, on these really amazing projects. So that's sort of the newest bit of, of what PVGo offers. So we have both the training program STDS now and the marketplace. So my role as the head of data science, sorry, I'm taking a long time answering your question. My role is to head up the data science team. So we have a team of, there's one, two, three, four of us internal data scientists. And we do a combination of things. We work on internal projects that we're doing at the moment that are within the company, but we also go out and do consultations with prospective business partners and really define projects, both projects for the STDS program and projects for the marketplace. So I may go and sit down with, with somebody who we've just met who just has expressed an interest in having a data science project, and we'll have a conversation about what the project might look like. And sometimes they know exactly what they want to do, and, and we, we basically do a project scope where we re recommend how we're going to approach the problem, what kind of skills we need for the project to succeed, how long we think it's going to take, and we basically put a, a, a roadmap down on paper for the project. Sometimes the client has no idea what they want to do. They just know that data science is something that's that can be good and valuable, and, and they want to do it, but they don't know anything more than that. And so then we have to have a real conversation about what their business strategy is, where what their objectives are, short term and long term, um, what how they're trying to separate themselves from their competition, or where their pain points are, and try to use drive a conversation that can help us get clues as to where we might bring value to the company, where data science might bring value to the company. So I do sort of both sides. I do those consultation meetings. I also work on the internal projects, and I manage my team. So um, like I said, there's, there's, there's three of us, and um, we're, we have a number of, of, of uh, balls in the air at any one time, and I, I try to look after everybody. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm also um, familiar with uh, Data science bootcamp, especially in the US, there are, you know, there's Inside and then there's Medis, a couple of the programs that are quite, you know, well known in the US. Yes. Um, okay, so so you you were you were mentioning that you know, the business model of PVO is to create that marketplace between uh, the, the business people who want to recruit talents and um, some of the aspiring uh, data scientists who want to get jobs, right? And so. Um, I guess my question are two for um, first one is uh, what what sort of um, industry from a business uh, your clients uh, what are some of the major industry that you uh, that people will work with you know in that are that uh, are in need of data science talent and the second part uh, talking about the the, the talent um, side you know. Uh, what sort of background are they come from, and what are some of the skill set that they they are lacking, and they need to uh, to work on to in in order to be eligible to to be high? Right. So well, I should clarify something first. Um, the the when we go to the marketplace, we aren't actually placing people into permanent jobs. Usually, these are people who have chosen they want to be freelancers and are looking for. Uh, for freelance jobs, so it's not like we're 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 taking our our fellows and saying here's a company and go work for them full time. Um, that does happen, but the marketplace isn't geared towards that. It's geared just towards freelancers on standalone projects. Um, so, it, in terms of which industries you work with, it it's really varied. We've had, I, I think it's up, upwards of 150 different business partners over the years. In all sorts of domains, uh, we've had large multinational firms. We've had 
financial services. We've had small startups. We've had non-for-profit charities that we've worked with. It, it, it's really a smattering. Um, we, we do quite a bit of work with retail, the retail sector right now, and we've done quite a bit of work with media. So uh, one of our recurrent well, one series of projects we've worked on is with a major UK news publisher. And we've done a few others with other, other media companies as well. Uh, we also do quite a bit of work recently with uh, local councils. So in the UK, the, the, the local government is called a council. And, and one thing we work on quite a bit is, is helping them bring data science to the way they interact with the people who use their services. So, for example, there's something called social housing in the UK where people who are in lower income brackets get subsidized housing and they rent the housing from the local council. So we've done some work in that sector, helping them bring data science to, to the, some of the problems they face when they're trying to run the state of many thousands of, of rental properties. Uh, in terms of, of the skills that the freelancers need, it, it really varies. There are things that are trendy now that weren't trendy a couple years ago. So, for example, we're seeing a lot of natural language processing right now. Uh, deep learning is coming up quite a bit. At the moment, we're doing a few projects with image recognition. So, uh, I, I would say that's also fairly trendy. Uh, but a lot of them are, are, are less sort of cutting edge and more adapting basic uh, sort of standard machine learning, let's say, approaches to, to their business problems. Even things as simple as, as logistic regression comes up a lot. And the way we, we build our teams, we often try to have a range of expertise. So we'll have some people who have quite a lot of experience, who've done many things and can bring a lot to the table, paired up with people who may have only come on the job market in the last few months and are, are really just trying to gain as much experience as they can and don't have a ton of expertise. So we try to match and try to make, try to build teams that have complementary abilities and skill sets. So in your career, you know, you have worked on projects both as a, an individual data scientist as well as, a, you know, project manager for teams of data scientists. So what could be your advice for people who want to make the same transition, you know, from like individual contributor to, to manager? I think most people find it a more difficult transition than they expect. And I know some of my colleagues who have been sort of, let's say, mid-level data scientists and then becomes more senior data scientists or lead data scientists and then have had to go on to take on a project management role have found that to be a, a more difficult transition than they thought it would be. It, it's, it's good to work with people and learn from managers who you think are good and are doing a good job. So if you can get on teams where you feel like there's a strong manager and try to learn from that person, I think that's a really good place to start. And there are a number of people out there who are blogging about it and writing about how you manage teams, how you build teams. Um, so I think that can help. There's a lot to know about how to manage people. And, and that can be really tricky, and especially on some of these projects where it gets a little tense and, and the stakes are kind of high and everyone feels a lot of pressure. It can be difficult to, to, get, the, to get the best out of the people who are working with you. And that's a real challenge. I, I have, in addition to, to being a scientist, I used to be a, an ice hockey coach. I would say that my experience coaching athletics has helped me more in that in that role than than my experience as a scientist or as a data scientist, at least in terms of managing a team. Uh, I would say also it's it's really useful to to go through the process of formalizing how you design a project from start to finish and how you design sprints um, and how you think about iterations on a project because a lot of what we do now is using some sort of agile methodology where you, you'll, you'll have a, a, a goal for a week and you, you try to get as much done as you can in a week and then you regroup and do another sprint the next week and, and a lot of times people don't want to go through the formality of, of documenting, okay, what are the stories for the week and what are the tasks? But for me, I find doing that is good practice for project management and for managing a team. 
and and even though it's a little bit a little bit hokey doing it for myself perhaps it's good practice and, and it's it's worth doing so i'd say also learning about those kind of methodologies and i would also say that, that in the business world having experience with that and being able to understand what what uh, a burn down chart is and how you use agile practices can resonate with the business partners and, and it, it 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 not only shows that you know how to approach a project it also shows that you are familiar with with the technology in that domain uh, let's talk a little bit more about um, kind of the landscape in data science. So, uh, how would you describe sort of the data science ecosystem in the UK? You know, since you um, you did your, your undergrad in the US, but ever since then you've been in, in uh, you know studying and doing work uh, both in research and industry in the UK. So, what what would you say be the main difference? In terms of that that ecosystem, you know, in 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 UK in specifically, and maybe in Europe in general. That's a good question, and I honestly don't know the answer to that. Partly because I only really know data science in the context of Europe, of Europe and the UK. Um, although I, the, most of the data scientists I follow and I admire are based in the, in the US, I would say. I saw that you recently gave a couple of talks at the O'Reilly Strata Data Conference in London, right? Yes. And so, yeah, um, one is about re revolutionizing the newsroom with AI, and another one is about uh, leveraging data science in the public sector. So, would you mind sharing some of the big takeaways from those presentations? Sure. Um, so, for the, the one with the newsroom, uh, we were partnered with News UK, who is uh, the publisher of three major newspapers here in the UK The Sun, The Times, and The Sunday Times. And we've worked on, on a number of projects together. and they were trying to do a, a general shift in the editorial room uh, away from, 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 from customer science and more into content science, trying to think about what about the content that they're putting out there affects readership, it affects clicks, views, engagement, things like that. And so we did a number of projects trying to understand that. Um, so, for example, one thing was to make a prediction about how how much traffic an article might generate in its lifetime. And if, if you look at, at, at articles that are appearing on the web page, I think this was for The Sun, they found that, that there's a spectrum. Some articles, they get a ton of traffic almost immediately after publication, so they spike really high and then they drop off almost as quickly. Whereas other articles, it's much more of a slow burn. They'll, they'll gain momentum over time and maybe days, maybe weeks but they'll carry on generating traffic. And so being able to take an article and, and, and predict which of those two behaviors it's likely to have with its readership can give the editors a, a, a lot of power to decide on how best to promote that article. If, for example, the article has already had its, its peak and it's on its way out and it's just it's done, there's no point pushing it and promoting it on social media, for example. Um, but if they think that there's there's a lot of life left in an article, then it might be worth doing that. And so part of the project was aimed at trying to make predictive models that could that could help the editors make that decision. And then in turn, as a follow-on to that, trying to understand which social media platforms a given article might perform best on. Um, so some articles do really well on Facebook, others do well on Twitter. And, and and trying to see what about the article, what about the metadata that described the article, um, what aspects of the headline, for example, or how it's published might affect that. So there, there's a number of projects that just described two of them all around that idea, trying to, to bring data science to the newsroom so the editors could make better informed decisions about how they promote their, their material. Um, so, so that was the, 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 the newsroom piece. The other piece about the, the, the bringing data science to the public sector, so this is one I alluded to earlier. This is with a local council here in, in London. They, they have social housing, which means that they have subsidized housing for tenants who are usually on the lower end of the income bracket. And the idea is that, that 
people don't get priced out of a region, they can stay there and they have this housing provided so that the people who have always lived in this area can stay there and, and, and it makes it a bit easier to sort of give them a place to stay but also preserve um, some of what makes a neighborhood unique. So they have this problem where, where sometimes people fall behind in their rents and they have processes by which they can they can deal with that and they can they can approach those people and try to get try to make things right. But they can't they can't deal with everybody. So they've got to prioritize who who should they talk to first and who can who is in the greatest greater risk. So for example if somebody might fall behind on their rent because they didn't get paid this week but they get paid next week and they when they do get paid they come right out of their state of arrears, their state of debt, then that's a pretty benign problem and it doesn't really pose much of a risk to the council. On the other hand, somebody else who may slip into a state of long term arrears where they they go behind their rent this week and this month and then that goes ends up being two or three months before they can get out or they may not be able to get out at all. Well that means a, a huge loss of income for the council. And it also creates a situation where these poor people just can't get out of debt, and they're, and they're stuck, you know, and it's a, it's stressful, and it's and nobody wins. So trying to predict for a given council tenant where they might be in terms of that risk was really valuable to the council to know where to to apply their own resources to try to help people out and, and to to get involved before things got out of control. Okay, so at this point of our interview, I kind of want to wind out with a little closing segment of some okay. quick-fire questions. So number one is, uh, what are the companies which are doing exceptional data science work that you admire? I, I mean, I think we, Pivigo, are doing okay. very nice work, and so I I, I, I admire my, this company before I worked here, and I still do. I think what we do is is, is great, and it brings a lot of a lot of data science to people who might struggle to get experience. Um, but, you know, aside from that plug, uh, there's a company here in the UK, I think they're also in New York, and, and I'm not sure, maybe, maybe they have three offices, Belgium maybe, called HAL24K, or maybe it's HAL24K. And, and they've been partnered with STDS for a number of years, and they always have very interesting projects, um, and all often revolving around urban planning, or, or, or problems that face humanity <laughs> in general, so like looking at pollution levels or things like that. Uh, and and I, I, that really resonates with me. I think that's really valuable work, and I, I really admire their approach to data science and their enthusiasm. So I'd say that's one company I really admire. Uh, I know two of, the, two of my favorite data scientists who I follow on Twitter both work at, at DataCamp, and uh, they... There's always a lot of resources coming through DataCamp, and these people are always promoting things that are valuable to me. And I, I think I, I get the impression, although I don't know firsthand, that there's a culture at DataCamp that really wants to bring data science out in the open and, and make it accessible to people. And, and I think that's also also really valuable. And, and me, as the head of data science at Pivigo, I also I strive for that myself. And it's it's been a, a something that I, I I'm in admiration of and I'm trying to, to do as much as we can with our own our own resources. Right. One of, um, I'm just curious, one of, one of those people you mentioned, is that uh, David Robinson? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm, um, I'm a huge fan of one of those, um, one of the tweets he mentioned, you know, like about creating a blog. Mm, yeah. Scientist. Yeah. So like, yes. once you kind of give the same advice three times, you should write a blog post. Yeah. Yes. And then uh, <laughs> that's one of the, the main motivation behind uh, my writing, I, I actually also read, uh, um, have written a lot of blog posts on both Medium and my own personal website as well. It's a great way to, you know, kind of share what the takeaways that I learned from yeah, either yeah. explaining a, a complicated technical concept into, you know, even promoting some of my freelance project, for example. So very, right, very, very yeah. good stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he's, I'm really a big fan of his and he had a series about Bayesian inference that I thought was just spectacular and, and beautifully written and really, really wonderful. And uh, I would recommend anybody to follow him. He's, I think he does great work. Awesome. And uh, another question is, uh, what is one book that you would recommend for people who want to develop a better uh, analytical mindset? 
That's a hard question. I, 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 I struggle because the, the books I read are usually very focused on specific things, like you know, learning how to do plotting in R or learning how to do statistical inference for machine learning. Yeah, I would suppose, um, like, not, not, e- not even have to be, like, technical books, you know, maybe, yeah, yeah like, maybe uh, general, even, like, perspective books from people who, like, from different fields, you know, uh, maybe even in, like, biology, I don't know, so there's some stuff that you, you have experience with. Yeah, it, it's, it, <laughs> you gave me a heads up about this question before, and I've, I've really struggled to come up with a good answer. I, I would say that I'm reading that I have the book uh, R for Data Science. Um, it, it's, it's very much applied for R and using R for Data Science, but what I also like about it is that it presents the process you go through as a data scientist to tackling a complex problem and how you frame the problem in terms of questions that you can test in a scientific way. Um, and, and to me, that's, that's, that really resonates with how, how my analytical mindset, I'd say, works. So, so that, I thought, was, was, was probably the best one I could come up with. Imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What would you tweet? I, I guess I'd, I'd give a, a series of bullet points. I would say um, make a learning plan and practice often. And as you're doing it, stay focused. Don't get distracted by the things you don't know. Focus on the things you're trying to learn. Uh, ask for help. Don't get intimidated. And I would add at the end to follow the rstats hashtag on Twitter because even if you don't care about programming in R or you don't care about uh, using R, it's an amazingly rich community and just following the chatter on Twitter around the rstats world, it, it, it's it's stimulating and it's invigorating and, and, it, and it, you, you can't help but get excited about data science by by just following along, even if it doesn't relate to your own hands-on work. Well, awesome. Uh, I think that's a good uh, way to close out our interview. Uh, okay. Really uh, appreciate you know you sharing your uh, experience from your career, from uh, education, and um, some of the work that you're doing at Pivotal for our audience. And uh, yeah, I uh, want to uh, thank you for that, and uh, hopefully we can connect sometime later. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.